0: All right, good morning, everyone. So glad you could join us for our Sunday worship today. Uh, If you don't know who I am, my name is Sam. Uh, I'm part of the pastoral staff, and I have the privilege of sharing God's word. I see a handful of new faces, so we want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting for the first time. Yeah, just to recap next week, looking forward to finally, after a long summer, re kicking off community groups. Particularly excited. It's been about three, four years since we've had an actual kickoff like this, and uh, it's because we're trying to revamp and have like a 2.0 version of where we're really trying to, you know, with the sermon series and everything we're doing. Really uh, recapture the vision of what it looks like to be the community of Christ. And I personally think, uh, as, as important as Sundays are, the midweek gatherings, we have a community. That's kind of more our lived experience of, of the body of Christ. And so, for everyone who does sign up, please do make it a point to be there. But if you're not a part of it or if you're new or visiting, again, in two weeks from now, I think the greatest first entry point to know what our church is about is the welcoming lunch. So, please do sign up for that. And we'd love to meet you in a, small, a more smaller setting. And I think the best thing about that is not so much the information you hear, but the connections you're able to make with. Some of the members and also other people are visiting the church. So if you're hesitant at all, I encourage you uh, go for it, sign up. You'll get free food. And again, no obligation whatsoever just to hear more about the church and get more connected. In the light of the spirit of community and community groups, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through a series on the importance and practice of community. And especially in light of kicking off community groups for the year, I have the privilege of closing out our series. Uh, The past three weeks, Pastor Tom has been preaching on it. And just to recap, uh, the first week we learned that Jesus practiced community. Jesus was not a lone ranger Christian. He was someone who understood the vital importance of community and the role that it has in the life of what it means to be a follower of God. And so he practiced it. He modeled it. In week two, we learned that community, it should look vastly different from the relationships you see in the rest of the world. And we saw that in uh, the week, second week that we preached on it. And last week, we learned that community on a very practical sense is not a one-size-fits-all, but it happens in different levels and spheres. And that Jesus himself, he had the crowds, he had his 12, he had... Uh, James and John, and so in the same way for us, it, it looks different that there's different degrees and levels of intimacy when it comes to community. But the one common thread between the past three weeks so far has been kind of this operating question of why do we need community, right? Why do we need community? And it's been kind of like a, a multifaceted angled approach to answering whether you're Christian or not, the role that community plays in your life, the whole that it fills, and particularly for Christ, the call that we have. But today I'm going to change the tune a little bit. and balance it out by kind of posing the reverse question of that, which is not why we need community, but according to our text, why the community needs you. Why the community needs you. You And so to be clear, by community, I'm referring specifically to the spiritual community within the body of Christ, a.k.a. the church. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's turn to our text in Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 8. And as we open God's word, can we all rise together as we believe here at our church every time we read God's word? uh, He is moving, speaking, present through his word. So Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 1, this is the reading of God's word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many, many in one body in Christ and individually members of one another, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith... If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would move and speak powerfully. Help it to impact not only our brains, but our hearts and our minds. And won't you continually build up here at Grace Hill the type of community that you would be pleased by. And one that reflects accurately who you call the church to be in light of the gospel. So we thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you visit uh, any home in California, which is all of our homes, uh, there's at least two safety devices that every home is mandated to have by the state. One is a smoke detector, and the other is a carbon monoxide detector, right? And if you have grown up in any home, you'll notice these, that they're always there. uh, They're required to be there. Now, a smoke detector, it's a little bit more straightforward. And I'm sure we've all had our run-ins with the dreaded smoke detector Whether you left something in the oven and it burnt and so the smoke detector started beeping off. Or, you know, in college for a lot of us it's when we're doing Korean barbecue and then, you know, the pork starts sizzling. And then someone has to do the obligatory like fanning it and like covering it with a wet paper towel because it always goes off. So, again, smoke detectors are a lot more familiar. We get it when there's smoke. It's trying to prevent you to let you know, hey, a fire is kind of on the way. But people are not as familiar with a carbon monoxide detector. At least I wasn't. Not as familiar as I was with the smoke detector. If you didn't know, uh, carbon monoxide detectors, they're actually especially more needed because unlike smoke, carbon monoxide, it is colorless, it is odorless, and it is tasteless. In other words, it's pretty much undetectable. That's what carbon monoxide is. But everybody knows it is toxic and it is poisonous, which is why you need to detect it. According to the CDC, more than 20,000 people in the U.S., they visit ER ER, emergency rooms all the time because of carbon monoxide poisoning. And surprisingly, even with detectors and even with awareness, at least a few hundred Americans die every year from carbon monoxide exposure or overexposure. And again, the scariest part about it is that without a, a working and functioning detector in place, you don't even know that you are ingesting this toxic and poisonous gas that will definitely hurt you but potentially kill you. Now, this may not seem as relevant to us in our modern day, but it was a big deal for my parents and our parents' generation if they lived in South Korea. South Korea historically a couple of decades ago, this was like a national issue because their method of heating the home was through these car, uh, basically coal briquettes. And what it would do is it was an easy way for carbon monoxide to leak in and people would breathe it in. And so if you guys watched a a popular Korean drama called Reply 1988, that's what happens. They're sleeping in the home, they're heating it, and then they're all kind of like choking because they're ingesting carbon monoxide. And so I thought, wow, that's crazy. And my dad and mom, they almost said it kind of like half-joking, like, yeah, we breathe that stuff all the time. (laughs) I was like, that's crazy. And so I was like, what did you do? Like, how did you remedy it? How did you counter the effects of it? And the answer was so simple. They said, in order to, to counter the effects of breathing in toxic air, you have to go outside and breathe in fresh air. That's how you you combat it. Makes sense. If you're breathing in toxic air, the only way to offset it is to breathe in fresh air. Now I share this with you because I think it sets a vivid picture of how the word of God, particularly the preached word of God, which happens on a weekly basis, is supposed to function in the life of a Christian. You see, at times there will be more obvious and blatantly sinful things that are kind of more like the smoke and fire of our lives. Like you don't even need a detector. It's kind of just very obvious. You can spot it from a mile away. However, and I think this is especially true in a context like ours, there are other times when things are so subtle and almost invisible in the way that it's affecting us and influencing us in a spiritually toxic manner, but it is preventing us from living out our faith in the healthy and full manner that God intends. In our text today, I think that is the equivalent of what breathing in spiritually toxic air is, according to Paul. In verse 2, breathing in spiritual toxic air, I think he would call being conformed to the age or the world. And the equivalent of breathing in spiritually fresh air, I would think he would call being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the reason I'm laying this foundation for a message on community... Is because I think there is at least one very subtle yet very unchallenged powerful cultural value that is increasingly becoming stronger that I hope to identify and challenge. Because if we don't, we'll never have the right starting point to build the kind of community that Jesus calls us to. And the type of community that Pastor Tom has been describing this whole series. And so to tackle this text, there's two things I want to point out that the apostle says we need to consider and embrace if you want to be. A God-honoring community. One is a posture of sacrifice, a posture of sacrifice, and secondly, you'll see that he gives a clear call that we are to use our spiritual gifts. Okay, posture of sacrifice and using our spiritual gifts. First, posture of sacrifice. So like many of us here, I was born to an immigrant family. Okay? I'm what they call a second-gen Korean American because I had parents, the first gen, who were not born here. They crossed the ocean to come here and start a new life in America. And if that's kind of similar to your narrative, Asian American immigrant family, what unites a lot of us together is having to hear countless stories of how much our parents have sacrificed for our sake. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I remember the first time I heard about this great sacrifice that John Myung-Hwan-bae and Esther-bae, my parents, made was in elementary school in first grade. I had to walk to school and I complained to them. It was about a five, seven-minute walk pretty close to my house. And I said, why do I have to walk to school? Like all my uh, Caucasian white friends get rides. And they looked at me with the most disgusted look. Like this privileged little first grader. They gave me that look of, are you serious? And they said, you know what we had to do to go to school? It's like I never asked them what they had to do, but let us tell you. And you know those stories, for some reason, they're always in the same setting. Like They must have all been friends. Like It's freezing cold, it's snowing, they have no clothes to wear for some reason, they have to walk miles and miles, and they say, how privileged and lucky you are. You know nothing of sacrifice. And I was like, okay. And that just kind of continued this pattern through most of my life, that anything I would bring up that they would consider not a given and a privilege, they would be sure to remind me that we sacrificed so that you can have these things. And this also applies in the spiritual sense, right? A lot of us are familiar and we kind of joke around the first generation. They were infamous for something called morning prayer. Morning prayer, okay? A lot of our parents either took part in this or we know about it, we're familiar with it. If you don't know what it is, a lot of Asian American, probably Korean American uh, Christians in the first gen, they woke up every single day at like 4 to 4.30 a.m. And mind you, it's not that they're not busy. They have families. They have kids. They have jobs. But they would just do that and wake up every single morning to go pray. And we see that as insane, right? There's like the sacrifice Christ made, and then there's morning prayer. Like that is just like absurd to us. And I'm sharing all this because if there's one thing that can describe the attitude of the previous generation of Christians that a lot of us come from, I think a case can be made that the attitude is one of sacrifice. Sacrifice. In fact, uh, to be more accurate, I would say the more accurate word is that they over-sacrificed a lot of times at the expense of their own health the health of their families which is why some of us are the way we are right however in the same way that unhealthy sacrifice was just the air they breathed and the fresh air they probably needed in their cultural moment and context was probably the biblical message of how to be more holistically healthy how to embrace grace more than works I think our generation has a very different problem. And I'm gonna argue that the spiritually toxic air of our cultural moment is not that of over sacrifice. We've almost overcorrected and swung the complete other way, which is now the extreme that we are combating in our age, which I would argue that Paul would call out is this not a culture of sacrifice, but a culture of convenience. A culture of convenience. I read an article, interesting one recently about how McDonald's and every other fast food chain, and if you drive around, you'll kind of notice this. This is happening all over. Uh, Fast food chains and McDonald's in particular, they've been tracking consumer behavior over the years, and this kind of exponentially skyrocketed during COVID. But basically every fast food chain, in order to survive what's going to happen in the near future, they're all changing their business models as a result of what they believe will be permanent consumer behavior changes for years to come, and it boils down to one simple word. What do consumers value most? Convenience. Convenience. One statistic that blew my mind, nearly 90% of sales from McDonald's came through drive-thru. Nine-tenths of the share of McDonald's worth is drive-thru. That is crazy. And I quote, the article states, whether it's the use of kiosks, the use of mobile, the use of delivery, the use of drive through Certainly one of the things that consumers are looking for more of, and this word became popular especially during COVID, is a contactless type of experience. A contactless type of experience. And I found it so telling that a convenient experience is somehow equivalent to or equated to the idea of a contactless experience, which basically means you remove human interaction. You don't have to deal with people anymore. Isn't that crazy? Like back in the day, what used to be the normal everyday interactions of you meeting someone saying, Hey, hi, how are you? What can I get for you? Here's your change. Now that is seen as an inconvenience. And that's the trajectory our culture is headed towards. Now, what are some other everyday ways this shows up in our lives? 15 years ago, if you told someone you can date someone and you can talk to them without ever having to get up from your couch to actually meet them, they would have said, How is that even possible? 10 years ago, if you told someone, I'm so bothered right now because my DoorDash delivery is late, they would say, What the heck is DoorDash? What do you mean your food delivery is late? Five years ago, if you told someone you were upset that you had to go in for work two days a week, they would have laughed at your face. What do you mean you have to go into work? Everybody goes into work five days a week. And yet now, what? It's a sacrifice. It's an inconvenience to go to work, but nobody questions it. You know what that's called? That's called the air we breathe, spirit of the age. Now, what do I share this? If the Apostle Paul were to observe the trajectory of our culture, I think he would sound a spiritual alarm because it is so fundamentally opposed to the essence of Christianity and what the Christian life is called to be, which is the polar opposite of a life of convenience, He makes that crystal clear in verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. This is an explosive verse. I feel apologetic to the Lord that I can't preach five hours just on this verse. But for the purpose of this sermon, I'll have to stay very broad. But essentially, after spending 11 loaded, doctrinally rich chapters on the deepest, most comprehensive explanation of the gospel, where he doesn't even touch you, it's all about God and what he's done for you, Paul basically says, therefore, the resulting life of the Christian who gets the gospel. Okay? Because I think even if you call yourself Christian and you say, I think I know the gospel, if this doesn't apply to you, Paul would say, you don't really get it. So, reread chapters 1 through 11 because the resulting characteristic of the gospel centered life, he would say, is fundamentally sacrificial. That's what he's saying. It's sacrificial. And if we conform to the increasing cultural value of convenience and allow it to bleed into our Christian practice, you are losing the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what he would say. Now, let's get on the same page. What do I mean by sacrifice? I'll give a very neutral definition, I think, captures well. Sacrifice is an act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy, right? So, one sacrifice I made was uh, after I got married, I had to sacrifice a lot of the time that would be spent on myself because now I have something more important and more worthy worth sacrificing for, namely my wife, my kids, my family. And we do this all intrinsically sacrifice is the inevitable outflow of our value systems okay so implied with the definition though is that sacrifices are not easy to make they come at a cost but what sacrifices are helpful for is it highlights what really matters to you and what's really important to you because i don't have to make the case the point is not will you sacrifice or not we all do The point is, what is it or who is it that you are sacrificing for? Because you will always sacrifice at the altar of whatever matters most to you. That's just a universal reality. Let's give some general examples of this. Nobody teaches parents that you need to sacrifice sleep in the early years of parenting. They value sleep. They love their rest. But they sacrifice it. Why? Because feeding and keeping their baby alive is now more important than their sleep. So they'll sacrifice A lot of us sacrifice our our hard-earned time and money to hang out with friends or go on vacation. Why? Because you value quality time with friends. For some of you, it's a sacrifice to come and serve on Sundays. But you do it, why? Because you value the church and you help build the church up when you can be doing something else. So one obvious reality, the posture of sacrifice, it is a necessary prerequisite if anything is to grow into something significant in your life. In other words, to reverse that, if you are not sacrificing for whatever it is in front of you, it seemingly cannot be significant by definition in your life. For example, could you imagine if a parent told their baby, I mean, no parent talks to a newborn baby, I mean, maybe they do, right? But what if they said, like, you know, I love you, but I simply, I just can't sacrifice, I'm sorry. That would never happen. Or you told your friends, you know, I value you guys, I cherish our relationship, but I simply will not and cannot sacrifice my time to hang out with you. That just will not happen. And yet, what the text is confronting everyone who calls himself a follower of Christ today is that so many of us functionally confess, "God is my greatest treasure. I love him more than anything else." We sing about how that we would do that. We read about how we do that. We pray about that, and yet we're not willing to sacrifice anything our plans, our convenience to invest in his community, which he cares about so deeply. That's why sometimes I I, I caution people, be careful what you sing. It's some dangerous words we sing, right? The religiosity of Christianity sometimes bleeds into, do you recognize what you just said? (laughs) That's a very bold statement that we make sometimes. Because Jesus, he is not a contactless Christ. The church is not a contactless community. It requires the nitty-gritty work of hard work, investment, and sacrifice. Now here's a quick application question. If you do an honest audit of your life, and this is kind of what David in the Psalms does, and I, I encourage you, if you haven't done this in a while, you should pray this. Ask the Lord, search me, O God, know me. Because I haven't done this in a while. What do you honestly sacrifice for these days? Is it, is it to go on vacations or trips or to play a really good round of golf or just to have more personal protected me time? Like what are you sacrificing for? And how much has the cultural air of convenience unknowingly bled into your Christian faith? Does your Christian faith submit to your comfort and convenience? Or is there, like Paul is saying, an element of being a living sacrifice embedded into your pursuit of following Christ? Now, what might this look like? If you are a Christian who claims to love Jesus, anyone has a right to ask you, what does that love look like in your life? Does it cost you anything? What decisions do you make on a regular basis for the sake of Christ, Or is Jesus and his church the first on the cutting block when it comes to your priorities? I know one practical way, because I want to get super practical. I know we're all tired, we're all busy, a lot of our parents. so I'm not going to say, therefore, sacrifice means drop everything and go to unreached people groups, okay? I'm not going to say that. I'm going to get very real here. One practical way this shows up is our willingness to sacrifice to prioritize Sunday worship. Very, very practical. Now, this could be a loaded topic. There's a lot of layers to it. But, you know, it is not uncommon in our church for people to miss Sunday worship for a variety of different reasons, okay? Some more than others and whatnot. Uh, Instead of going the more, like, guilt-tripping route, let me go the encouraging route. There are a few members here, and you know who you are. They encourage me greatly because whether they are on a trip or they go on a vacation, they always make it a point to plan to make it back to Sunday worship. So if there's a bachelor trip that extends through a three-day weekend... Or through Sunday evening, they'll say, sorry, I got to leave early. They'll wake up early. They'll book a flight. They'll change their flight. They'll do whatever it takes because why? As great as it is to go on trips and important as it is, one simple way that the sacrificial spirit is showing up in their lives is, hey, I want to prioritize worshiping God and being with the church. Again, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but if you look at the other flip side of that, the, the utter flippancy that some people treat God's church with and, and worship with is not that something's wrong with you. I just be curious, like, what does your Christianity cost you if Christ and the church can just be chopped off every time something comes up? I think that is a legitimate question that the scriptures would ask. Another way this shows up in our, is in our posture of serving the church. Um, this is my personal opinion, Okay. Uh, I might get in trouble for this, but I personally have have mixed feelings about uh, the service culture that maybe it's not just our church. All I know is our church that we have. Uh, If you don't know, one of the values of our church, which I really like is to be very mindful of our volunteers. And again, I think this is a a reaction to our parents' generation where people literally served and they on the altar of serving, they sacrificed their family, their health, their mental sanity. So I think now we've come to this other way where I'm overseeing the ministries this year, so I have a little more insight. Our ministry leaders feel guilty and scared to ask somebody to serve once a month. They're like, could you please buy some plates? And then the person was like, oh, I guess. And I was like, Thank you. Thank you for your service. You're helping the body. Now, I don't, I don't mean to trivialize too much, but I'm half seriously saying, our church, we do our best we have a rotational system where the average volunteer serves maybe one time a month. There's nothing wrong with it. I think there's a lot of good to that. And the purpose of that is not because, oh, you shouldn't serve every week. It's we want to free you to worship. That's the ultimate purpose. So it's actually counterintuitive if you only come the week you serve and then you don't come the other weeks. That's not the purpose. It's not so you can serve one week and then go on vacation the next three weeks. That's not why we do that. And there's a lot of good, but again, the tone and culture that's happening, I, I notice, it's not quite there, but it can get there. Of the people who serve, is when you are on rotation, the posture is almost like you are doing the church a monumental favor. Like you are doing God a solid, and you're making a grand sacrifice to serve him amidst your busy schedule in life. And that posture bleeds. Think about that. What does that show if you're an education volunteer and our children see that? Like, wow, God needs me. And when I do it, I, I, I'm doing something great for the Lord. I don't think that's the posture of Romans 12. I remember one brother who being a member not too long ago, he came and was confused at why people were saying that they are so tired from serving once a month because in his context in church, he said he came from a context where everybody serves every week. And I tried to explain to him, he just, he just couldn't get it. In other words, if we think periodically serving God's people and God's church, formal role or not, and being used by God for his purpose is a great sacrifice, can I say our sacrificial muscles of Christianity have grown weak? That we may have simply grown soft as a generation. That we criticize our parents' generation for being overly sacrificial and they have every right to criticize for being under-sacrificial. And over-correction is just as bad. And we've completely forgotten the essence of Romans 12 then. You see, we have to admit, the carbon dioxide of the culture we live in champions the path of minimal sacrifice and difficulty. But this path of least resistance is not the way of Jesus. It's not indicative of his life. It's not indicative of the call to discipleship. It's definitely not indicative of the gospel or the cross of Christ. And if we continue to breathe this spiritually toxic air unchallenged without combating it, the church's power and effectiveness will be utterly neutralized. And so that's why every Sunday, the spirit through the word of God and the preaching gives you fresh air to breathe in and says, don't do that. Combat that. Here is the gospel. Don't live in that way. Because otherwise the church simply cannot and will not grow. So the first thing we need to retain in the midst of an increasingly comfort-seeking culture is the essence of this sacrificial spirit. And after laying that foundation, Paul immediately points out the second important variable for the church community to grow. Which is, two, there is a universal call amongst Christians to use our spiritual gifts. A lot of people, when they read Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, uh, it's preached kind of in a more personal way. And we kind of interpret it that way as Westerners because we're so individualistic. And so when we hear the idea of like, be a living sacrifice, we think it's about me and God. So God, I will serve you. I will sacrifice for you. And I think the downside of a lot of sermons that are preached just on verse 1 and 2 is that it ignores the larger context of what Paul means by being a living sacrifice. Because if you go on and read verse 3 to 8... He says four, okay? So this is a connection. Verse 3 and 3 to 8 is connected to verse 1 to 2. And if I could summarize he's saying, Christians, the way you offer yourself as a living sacrifice is through the life of the community. Is through the local church. Look what he says, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts in the have the same function, in the same way we are many in one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is very significant because Paul directly ties the idea of being a living sacrifice and offering spiritual worship to your relationship to and involvement in the church body. What this means is there cannot, according to this text, the meaningful spiritual life and sacrificial discipleship outside the walls of the local church as the primary arena. Romans 12 simply does not leave room for a me and Jesus privatized relationship that has become so normalized here in the States. Every so often there's going to be Christians, and it's even in our church, that say, you know, I don't feel connected with the church, but I'm spiritually great. I'm doing great. Me and Jesus are good. And I get what they're saying. Like, I even understand that sentiment. But I think what Paul and various other parts of the Bible would say is like, how? How's that possible? How do you have a meaningful connection to Christ outside of his body? Now, let me get a little more practical here. The past few weeks, the emphasis was more on the relational angle of community. But like I said, this text emphasizes more so the importance of how God not only wants to use the community to bless you, but wants to use you to bless the community. If I can summarize basically what Paul is asserting in a very straightforward manner, here's what he says. He says, every single Christian is given a gift. It is a gift that only you have and that only you possess. I don't know why sometimes random Snapple facts will really bless me. One Snapple fact, if you didn't know, nobody has the same fingerprint. Maybe you're like, yeah, it does, Sam. That blew my mind. I was like, that's amazing. And I really researched. I was like, is this really true? They're like, yes, even identical twins do not have the same fingerprint. In that same way, there is no other you in the church. You are irreplaceable. You are fundamentally indispensable. You are gifted and wired in a way that only you can be. And so if you're not there, there's a problem. That's what Paul would say. Every single one of us is gifted in a unique way. And he explains how those gifts are different. Some of you guys are like hands in the body. Some of you guys are like feet. Even though we are all one, we are different. And here's the thing, he says, in those giftings, problems arise if your focus is on what is the gift and what are the differences of the gifts. Because nowhere in the text does it say, you know the gifts you have? Compare them. Rank them. There's only one imperative in this text. You know what it is? And I like where the ESV translates. It should be there in verse 6. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's the only imperative. It doesn't say compare them. It doesn't say assess your worth by them. In other words, Paul is once again reiterating God has uniquely wired you and placed you in the body to do what only you can do. In other words, the flip side of that is this. If you are disengaged or inactive as part of the body, the community is incomplete. No matter how not gifted you might think you might be. So if you're thinking, okay, so I'm gifted as a Christian. I don't know what my gift is. How do I know what my spiritual gift is? How do I know what I'm gifted in? I'm glad you asked. Uh, a while back, a big thing that churches would do is they would have people take what was called a spiritual gift assessment. Very cheesy, okay? They're, those are so easy to read. It would say stuff like, do you like showing mercy? One to five. Five. You're gifted in mercy. Like, so dumb, right? So I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not a fan of that. It was basically like a cheesy church version of like the Enneagram or like the Myers-Briggs, except spiritual gift-wise. So it's obvious. It's like, do you like giving money? No. Well, because I'm not gifted in giving then. Sorry. That's not my gift. The emphasis is not that in scripture, okay? It's not to say, let me find out what my gifts are so I know what I can and can't do. No, every commentator will tell you the gifts, they're not supposed to be neatly packaged like that. Everyone's more like a a collage and conglomerate of a variety of different things. So I'm not a fan of that approach, but I do think frameworks help. So here's a framework that I've heard which I think is helpful. How do you go about discovering how God has wired and gifted you? Three things. Number one, gifts are often discovered in practice. Second, they are then confirmed in community. And third, they are then expressed in service. Here's what that looked like in my own life. In my journey of faith, the last thing I wanted to do was be a pastor. My father is a pastor. My uncle is a pastor. My other uncle is a pastor. My brother is a pastor. And my sister is pretty much a missionary. So I said, not me, Lord. Please no. And yet, I did love the Lord. I wanted to be of use to him. So anytime opportunities arose, I was willing to help out. And soon it came to my discovery, one thing I have is a loud voice. Like, just today, I saw a sister, I said, good morning. She was like, you startled me. I've had many times, Angela says, stop yelling. I'm like, I'm just talking. It's just a natural gift that I have. Secondly, I don't have any issue with public speaking. Like, I never related to people who said, oh, I would rather die than public speak. I'd say, I'd rather not die. I'd rather public speak. It's not hard for me to speak publicly or to teach And as I was discovering this, people would unfortunately, to my dislike, confirm that and say, Sam, I was so blessed by your preaching. I was like, why? I think you should be a pastor. No! Confirmed by community. And so here I am today. I'm a pastor expressing my gift to the best of my ability I can for the purpose of his church. The best way to discover your spiritual gift, if you don't know where to start... Fill in a need wherever you see it. And sometimes within that very decision you make, you might know what your gift and burden is. Because, for example, often the very needs that you notice are wired to you. Because not everyone sees needs the same. For example, some people, if they notice there's a great need, there's a lot of newcomers I feel like are not getting welcomed. You know what I'll probably tell them? You're probably gifted in welcoming. Because you're seeing it not everybody does. Other people... The 1% of the church, probably the .5% of the church at members meetings, when we talk about the church budget and everyone does not care, the half percent that's like, man, we need to raise money. Man, I need to give. Maybe you're gifted in giving. That God has just wired you to be generous in your giving. If you're burdened for the less fortunate and how to be a blessing to the poor, maybe you're gifted in mercy. And let me make it clear. This is not to say, okay, because my gift is giving, I don't have to be merciful. Because my gift is welcoming, I don't have to do administration. No. Christians are called to all of these, but if I could define what spiritual gift is, it is a, a particularly specified and special endowment of grace that elevates not only your desire for it, but even your fruitfulness in it. Very important to grasp. So again, that's one way. Or maybe you don't see a specific need, but you hear an announcement that the church has a need and your posture is like, I want to be sacrificial. Fill me in wherever I can. I encourage you by starting there. Feel the need and go from there recently there's an education ministry kickoff we posted about on our instagram so encouraging to see and i saw a lot of new faces i saw one sister that i had no idea that she had a heart for education so i was like hey it's so great that you're serving education and nursery i didn't know you have a heart for nursery and she was like i didn't know either i still don't know i'm just doing it because they needed need a need and then she said something interesting she's like i'm doing it to see if i do have a heart for it i was like wow what a posture like, how would you ever know if you have a heart for kids if you never try serving the kids? How would you know if you have a heart for welcoming if you never try welcoming? And in the specialized culture that we're in, usually where I need to know before I get my feet wet, Christianity is always reverse. Every time God leads his people, it's usually make the move and you'll notice that I'm there. Living by faith, not by sight. So spiritual gifts are often discovered, but how do you know for sure? It's helpful to ask the community, okay? This is where it requires humility. That's what Paul says. He says, don't have an overinflated view of yourself. You're gonna get into trouble, right? You need to be soberly understanding that some of us may not be as gifted as we think or in areas that we want. And maybe in our context of our body, it may be better filled serving a different role in the way that church needs. For example, if you're serving a welcoming and you think I'm the most welcoming person in the world, but you hate talking to people and you can't carry on a conversation, it'll probably take me like 10 minutes to realize this isn't your gift. It's most likely not how God has wired you. And if you would just ask your ministry peers, they will likely tell you, yeah, this probably isn't your strength. And that's totally fine. You're not called to be or gifted in someone you're not. That just means maybe there's another way that God has intended you to fill. Now again, like I mentioned, my role in the church was adjusted this year. So I have the privilege of overseeing the ministries at our church, our ministry leads, our volunteers. And I do want to first take some time to really affirm and encourage everyone who's serving. Some of you are in this room and some of you are not. Uh, Grace Hill, we are so blessed with so many faithful and willing members who are sacrificially using their gifts to help our body function. If you're new or visiting, or if you're not particularly involved in the behind the scenes, uh, what it takes to even have a Sunday worship at our church is not the norm because we're a mobile church. So whenever a church that has a building tells us, oh, this is what we have to do, I kind of like in a sinful way scoff because I'm like, it must be nice. I have like my my dad's mentality. Oh, you have to open the door, do you? Do you have a trailer? Do you have to set things up? Do you have to tear things down? And so just to know, from start to finish, everything from setting up our church to setting up tables and tablecloths and welcoming people, to arranging seats and thinking about aisles like this, or helping people get seated, making sure the audio and the visuals are all good to go, to people leading us in praise and worship. I love our praise and worship, or watching and discipling our children, or providing snacks and coffee to create a hospital environment. It doesn't just poof happen out of nowhere. There are members of the body that are sacrificially doing these things to build the church up. And every one of you who's doing that, can I encourage you, there is a lot of fruit coming from that. The reason I think so many people are sticking around or visiting is a direct result and fruit of all the ways that our gifted churches people are doing this. And the fact that we have to pack it all up and do it week by week is crazy to me. I'm so thankful for our church and our volunteers. And for those who are serving, can I affirm you, God is using you to bless the church. Like I mentioned, visitors all the time will mention, I stuck around because somebody welcomed me. Or my children really loved education. Or praise was exceptionally encouraging. So I'm very thankful. And if I can just lay it out there, I am a proud pastor of this church. I think Pastor Tom is a proud pastor of this church. We're very thankful and in no way do we want to make it feel like we are not. I love seeing members use their God-given gifts to serve the body. Everything from collegians, young adults, married couples. And it's extra spicy when it's parents. Because I'm like, how in the world are you here? You are so amazing. Amazing. At the same time, while well, that is the vast majority I would say, I also know there are a handful of folks, some of you are members, who aren't doing anything to build up the body. Now let me clarify, I have no intention to guilt trip anyone into serving, Right? This, that's between you and the Lord and your conscience. This is not a message to intend to pressure anyone into serving. I think there are legitimate reasons to, to take rest or to take a break. So I'm not referring to that. But the challenge, I think, from the text that all of us should feel is the legitimate question and burden to ask, God has given me a gift. Fact. God does call me to utilize that gift. Fact. And so what role am I to play in his body? Formal or not? Fact. Fact. In other words, when is the last time that you had an inkling and stirring in your heart to pray to God, not to use God, but to be used by God? Father, use me. Utilize me for your kingdom. Use me for your church. And if you have any curiosity as to what needs we may have at the current moment, please don't hesitate to talk to me. I'm getting very practical here. Whatever medium you want. Talk to me after worship. Message me. We have a sign up on our link tree. I'd love to talk to you about how to get more involved. Our ministry leaders are always open to have more hands to help. And I know very specifically, if you're like, well, uh, that's too generic. What do you need help for? AV needs help. What does AV need help for? Do you need a sound person? See, I know everything. (laughs) I know all the needs. Hospitality could use more volunteers. Setup could use more volunteers for anyone who's interested or willing. But the point is not therefore sign up just to sign up. It's The the body has needs. That's the bottom line. For others of us, God has given us gifts and burdens that maybe do not have formal outlets at the moment. And I love this. It talks, uh, I read an article that talks about how basically in the Western church, usually the way that ministry happens is people look at the formal established ministries that are there and think, I need to fit my passion within that. I don't think that's the tone of the New Testament. I think the spirit moves and works through those formal things, yes, but equally through the hearts of the people. In other words, if you have a heart for mercy and we don't have a ministry for that, we will create a ministry to the best of our ability to help you live your gift out. That's the tone of the church. That's how the spirit moves. Do not quench your God-given wiring and burden because there's no formal avenue for it. It may very well be that God wants to use your gift and your burden to grow the church. So I hope it's clear God has gifted you in a way that only you can contribute to the church. And if you're MIA or inactive, the church is lacking. Now, I, I intentionally wanted to make sure that I didn't end the sermon there. Because it just sounds really weird. Like, here's the application. Be our next sound guy. Okay? That is not the application of this message. I know for a lot of us, it's hard not to kind of like, just kind of turn off. Because if you're like me, you've heard this a thousand times. Oh, the importance of serving and, you know, building the church and sign up for ministries. It's just so fatiguing to hear it again, right? Which is why I want to return to the most important thing in this whole text, which is to answer not the what, but the why. Why should I sacrifice? Why should I use my gifts? Why should I serve? Or if you're already serving, how can I serve in a way where I'm not just doing it, clocking in, clocking out, but this duty is more of a delight, Because I would say to level up, as great as our church is, the way that we can really spread the aroma of Christ in our service is not just doing it, but having the joy of Christ in doing it. Not, oh God, I have to be here, but like, what a joy to be here. And there is a way to do this in the non fabricated way. Look at Romans 12 again. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. Let me pause there and close here. We have jumped in 12 chapters into Paul's letter. And Paul has not given a single word of exhortation for the first 11 chapters. You know why? Because the full 11 chapters is about who God is and what he has done for you. And I love this. He summarizes the gospel of chapters 1 through 11 through this very particular phrase. The mercies of God. He doesn't say in view of God's power and authority, now offer yourself as service to him. He doesn't say in light of God's justice, because he is a just God who's going to repay you, now you better serve him. He doesn't say in light of God that he is the judge, and because of that, you better be careful. But he says in view of God's mercy. Mercy. Again, Paul could have said something like, you better do this, or else judgment day is coming. He could have said, there is wrath for those who don't obey. Or he could have flat out stated like he does in a lot of his epistles, and I command you, Present your body as the living sacrifice. Why not? You know why? Because that would not produce the kind of genuine worship that God desires. It would produce religiosity. It would produce duty, not delight. And Paul understood the greatest motivator to genuinely spark change and transformation in anyone's life is gratitude. When you see all that God has done for you in chapters 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 which hopefully one day we can go through it is in the debt to the unending mercy of God that now therefore we can live in response to that Some of us live as there's one chapter of God's mercy and 20 chapters of commands. Do you know how do you know this is you? There's no joy. <laughs> You're not moved by God's grace in the gospel of grace. You're fulfilling obligations. Others of you live 20 chapters of mercy and one chapter of exhortation. And you know how you know that? There's no power in your life. The gospel doesn't change anything for you. It's just like, I'm good. And there's absolutely no living out of that. However, it's not a 50-50. It's worth noting that in a 15-chapter book, 11 of them have to do with the grace of God. And three of them have to do with our response. In other words, you're not repaying God. You can never do that. You are simply out of gratitude in response, in right response to that, living in light of his mercy. So invite, as I invite the praise team back up, as we close out this series in community, can you recognize again, yes, we need community. There's so many facets that we need about community. And at the same time, as Paul would say in our text today, the community needs you. You and your uniqueness, you and your wiring, you and your gifting. And so as we just close the series and in prayer, can, first, can we pray for a desire to want to, again, be used by God and not just use him and to have eyes to see those opportunities in our body? But more importantly, like we just heard, to see God's mercies and his sacrifice for us in a new and fresh way to instill new motivation to live in response to that. So let's just take a moment to reflect and then I'll pray for us.